everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I'm Cole Fakes, joined again by Dr. Ben Williams. And uh, the doctorate here is encompassing the two areas of knowledge we're going to focus on in this final episode of the God Hypothesis, faith and science. So, Ben, we're glad to have you back on to, to do a third installment on this book. I've enjoyed it. It's been over my head in certain areas. Uh, but it's run parallel to so many of your interests. I just love getting to have these conversations with you about it. Uh, it, I've enjoyed it as well. And thank you for letting me talk about it. And, um, even though it's parallel with a lot of my interest, I I have also found places that were over my head or over my head. Now I I'm suddenly remembering how long it's been since I've sat in a physics classroom when I was getting into some of these sections, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it was really, it's been really good refresher. You know, one of the hard things about books in apologetics like this one is they typically can only be one of two things. They can be a popular level treatment that gets lambasted by other specialists, or they can be a specialist treatment that never gets read by popular audiences. And I think Stephen Meyer's done as good a job as you can do of really answering with substantive scientific arguments, but writing and taking the time to explain in a way that a layperson can really get a lot out of the book. Yeah. I would say this in section may be where he drifts a little bit further into the scientific <laughs> arguments and yeah. out of lay people. And I would definitely consider myself just a lay person in this area, definitely out of our grasp. You know, the the writers that really make a difference, in my mind, the guys I am drawn to, uh, really do flirt with that line between popular and uh academic or sophisticated writing, your C.S. Lewis, your Tim Keller, and here Myers, just you know, know how to navigate that pretty well. Um, but just by definition of, you know, the response has to be as sophisticated as the question. So I would love to give you, you know, the 10 second rundown of the creation of the universe. But if you respond to me with, yeah, but quantum mechanics, now I have to give you a, a quantum mechanics based answer and then you don't get to cry foul when it's complicated. You ask the question. And that's right. kind of what happens in a lot of these arguments of like, oh, you made it too complicated. Well, you asked a hard question. I don't know, I don't know what else to do with that. Yes. Well, you know, I'm glad you bring that up because there's a there's an approach to apologetics that often happens on a more popular level. Sometimes you see this with people who are speaking different places. So a lot of times you see this on social media where there's a way of dropping down into specialization hoping that nobody follows you there. It's like, you know, the person that can hold their breath for the longest in the deep end. Everybody has to come up for air at some point. And you don't know whether or not the person is right. You just know they've gone a lot deeper than everybody else can. Meyer has written this book in a way that you can feel confident, whether it's somebody you're having dialogue with or somebody that uh, has been challenging you and now you're looking for answers. He goes down to the very deep end of the pool and stays down there for a long time. And in this last section, he's confronting a lot of the contemporary arguments that are being made. And so what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to give a quick recap of where we've been in the book. We're going to talk about a few of these arguments and then maybe just point the way towards uh, the deeper arguments that he brings up. And then the way he ends the book is pretty interesting. Where does the conversation go from here? Where is apologetics going? Where is the dialogue between faith and science going? What are kind of the hot spots to watch in the next few years? And we'll add some of our own to that. So what I appreciate about this book in terms of the layout and where we've been is in episode one, we talked about the history of the conversation between faith and science. And that conversation is actually quite a bit different than 
maybe you would guess from reading something like The God Delusion or uh, some of these popular atheist books, there's, for the majority of history, there has actually been a mutual relationship between science and faith. In fact, one of the things we argued in the first episode that Meyer makes really clear is that sometimes the greatest scientific discoveries have been conducted by people of faith because it's faith that would lead you to do something like science, to believe that there's a world that's understandable and a God that we can discover in nature. Uh, and then he goes into talking about where that conversation has come in recent years, and he gives three major areas of argument that would not just lead you to say faith and science are compatible, but three areas of science that would actually lead you to believe that God, a creator, is the most logical explanation for what we see. We did a section on abductive logic, where given the evidence that we have found, given the things that we've discovered scientifically, what's what's the inference to the best explanation? There must have been a God that created this. And that's from the origin of the universe, the origin of life, to the way that life works, the way that our cells and our biology function we have reason to believe that the best way to explain all of this, even scientifically speaking, is to point to a God of the universe. And I thought that was an extremely strong argument. It was a great treatment of where we've come scientifically as a society in the last 50 years uh, and poked holes in a lot of the pseudo scientific arguments that are made that don't know where the line is between the assumptions that science is making and the deliverances of science. Right. And I think that's going to be the question we're going to come back to time and time again uh, as we go through this podcast is asking the question, was that still science? I know a scientist said it. Was that still science? Um, even uh, my field has been science. Yours is background in mathematics. There's a lot of overlap in the processes of those two fields, but they are philosophically very different realms. And quite often, these guys slip from one to the other without commenting on the the, the breach of the border there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads to some great questions that Meyer consistently asks. So I was very pleased with that. Oh, that's one of the reasons Meyer is such a perfect person to write this book. He is, He does have a scientific background, but his area of specialty is in the philosophy of science. And so he's constantly in this book adjudicating, that's a scientific claim, that's no longer a scientific claim, even though, as you said, and I love that you pointed this out, just because a scientist says it doesn't mean it's science, okay? <laughs> and of course, we all lived through this with COVID and the whole trust the science. We all had to step back and become philosophers of science. What is science and what does it mean to follow the science? That's exactly what we're doing in these arguments as well as saying, okay, just because a scientist says this doesn't mean that it's consensus. And then additionally, but that doesn't actually mean that it's science sometimes, uh, which has been really helpful to comb through a lot of these arguments. Now, we arrive kind of at the end of this book with these arguments from the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the nature of life. We talked last time about arguments that are wrapped up in those three areas. And uh, that's the heart of the argument that Meyer is making. But in this last section, what he's doing is he's going a bit further and saying, what are some of the uh, responses to this? What would other scientists, other people working in this field pose as maybe counterexamples or areas where we don't actually know enough yet to have a consensus? What are some of the things that people have tried to disprove the kind of reasoning that uh, Meyer is using? And I love that he starts in a place that you and I actually have a fondness for both in our in both of our upbringings. We've 
come across and studied different things by Stephen Hawking. In fact, if you've been in the sciences for the last 50 to 60 years, you've come across not only Stephen Hawking's work, but his brilliant ability to popularize his work. And, you know, there's a lot of really admirable things about Stephen Hawking, his own fight physically, his emotional fortitude, and the contributions he made to science. He single-handedly made people interested in some areas of science. So, Ben, give us a background, uh, a little bit about Stephen Hawking, and then let's bring him into the conversation of science and faith. So Hawking is tinkering with, uh, early in his career, the the distant edges of what Einstein's model of relativity left us with in terms of specifically gravity, but in terms of space and time. Um, he's working with black hole theory and, and all the just the, the ragged, jagged edge of every kind of physics that there is on the biggest picture. And he is, as you might guess, absolutely brilliant and has a knack for mathematical tricks uh, that you, you it, it's a leap of imagination. It's not a brute force attack. It's uh, uh, picking up the stick by the other side. You know, you just you like have to think of it fundamentally different the same way Einstein did. Mm -hmm. So he's doing that at the, the edges of uh, relativity. And uh, one of the things he does is to take uh, a variable, say time, and to find that he can solve the equations almost like inside out by replacing time with a pseudo time variable. Uh, he used tau, uh, kind of nice letter. A and then he would use uh, the imaginary uh, number I, which uh, you might remember from arithmetic, our listeners might, uh, somewhere <laughs> back there in high school, you learn the, the square root of negative one is a bad idea. And uh, you can write it with an I such that uh, I squared is negative one. It's a variable that says something we're not supposed to be able to say. Like, so for mathematicians, it's, it's great. It makes the math work. For physicists, uh, it's a problem because I can now write something that I cannot actually give a material analog to. I, I don't know what I've written when I write I or the square root of negative one. It, it has some value. It's a great tool. Um, well, Hawking throws it into relativity and it makes some fun things come out. It kind of turns the whole thing inside out where time acts more like a spatial variable and you can start thinking about uh, bounded limits of time in, in ways that we hadn't thought of before. And it's just, you know, it's beautiful and elegant and has no analogous material meaning. Like he, he did something mathematically really cool. And then the byproduct of that was to be able to say, if you allow me to do this, I no longer need a beginning of the universe because I've flipped the universe inside out and it's all better now. But being able to do something mathematically and saying why you did it or justifying it ontologically are very different things. Um, for And this... This gets lost because the, the physicist has to spend so much time in the math classroom, but never becomes a mathematician. 
we sometimes forget that for us, mathematics is a tool that at the root of our philosophy and method, mathematics is an abstraction, but we use it so much that it becomes the reality to us, especially at those frayed edges of quantum mechanics and relativity. And you start to believe anything you can do on a calculator is reality. And at some point you stopped describing anything that you can actually describe in words as a material reality or a natural reality. So I think what we can say is that Hawking did something really mathematically cool and kudos to him. I don't think anyone can tell us what that means, including Hawking, because uh, it, it has no obvious corresponding physical reality other than, right. hey, look at this thing I did. Yeah, let me back up there so we can even more fully appreciate this point that you're making and and one that Meyer makes in the book about the difference between what you can do theoretically and what you are actually mapping that onto in the physical universe. Hawking is working between quantum mechanics and relativity. Give us an overview of what he was actually trying to do with those things and why that is a pertinent thing to this whole philosophy of science, faith and science debate. So, um, I mean, big picture, I can take you back to my very first college physics class, uh, the uh, first semester, very last lecture of the semester. He says, OK, here's what's next if you continue in professional physics. Uh, and he maps out the conclusions in summary of general relativity, and he maps out the conclusions in summary of quantum physics. He says both of these are true and they are fundamentally incompatible with each other. If you can fix that, there is a Nobel Prize waiting for you. See you next semester. <laughs> and that's how the class ended. Yeah, right? gentlemen, start your engines. Yeah, I mean, it's been a problem. It's not a recent, it's like, you know, a century-long problem. Uh, that is a legitimate issue, that they are completely self-contained, beautiful little mathematical worlds that have opposite conclusions. And relativity, space is like a, a nice sheet of paper or maybe a nice sheet of rubber where it's, you know, you can deform it, you can do things to it, but it's, it's really nice and smooth and quantum mechanics. It's like foam. It's like bubble wrap. And it, it's just fundamentally different how you think of space, how you think of time um, and quantum mechanics, things that are superficially impossible happen all the time. Uh, when you hear the phrase quantum tun tunneling, it means a thing happened that shouldn't be able to happen. That's uh, the short version of it. And again, there's reason to believe that that's true. I'm not denying quantum physics. I'm just saying it is a self-contained set of conclusions uh, that don't fit with the other set of self-contained conclusions. And they apply on different areas of the map. Uh, the biggest, fastest moving things, huge mass, you want to use relativity. Tiny, tiny, tiny things, you want quantum physics. Um, and everywhere in between, we can be good Newtonian physicists, and, and and there's no problem. Well, when you're talking about the beginning of the universe, somewhere all of that has to lay on top of each other. We're talking about the entire universe popping out of an infinitesimally small, almost nothingness, which I, we'll get to that word later. Um, so it sounds like both things should apply. Uh, you're trying to create particle physics out of a can. 
And, and he, he's trying to make those equations fit together. It's where you get, it's where you get all the really fun stuff in the last few decades. You get string theory came out of that, that pursuit. Um, lots of the multiverse theory came out of that pursuit. These were all attempts to say, can we make these work together? So far, nobody really has in a way that is definitive. But Hawkins did some great work of of saying here are some again some mathematical tricks that make things work better than they did before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you have the same thing with uh, Einstein. You have the same thing with uh, several of the 20th century uh, scientists. They had a great kind of career making scientific discovery, mm-hmm. and then almost on another channel of their life, they had an ideology, almost a religious ideology that they struggled to play out with their scientific findings. Uh, That was the singularity. That was the discussion we had in podcast episode one on this topic. Then with Hawking, what you have is you have this profound grasp of the way the universe works. Black holes were basically discovered during Hawking's doctoral work because of what he was writing. And um, you have the fabric of the universe laid out in a way that people hadn't thought about before. And then as time went on, Hawking really doesn't want there to be a neat and tidy uh, singularity at the beginning of the universe. And I don't say that to say uh, he was completely driven ideologically. I just mean he didn't think there was one and he was working to show that that was the case. Some of this has to do with his religious beliefs that, you know, he doesn't believe that there was a creator. So there has to be some explanation for how the universe got here. And it certainly looks like there was a singularity. And so, as you mentioned, you then start to you you then start to do things mathematically that we actually cannot test, nor can we know how to test at this point some of these uh, theories physically. And what Hawking was famous for before he died was trying to reach back behind the singularity, behind the Big Bang, and figure out what was going on then. And so he pulls this crazy mathematical stunt with this imaginary variable. And there's something called a wick rotation and an imaginary time variable. And all of a sudden, you know, the the singularity, the Big Bang is not the beginning of time. We have an inverted time before that. And uh, this is stuff that gets beyond my ability to explain. But it's all trying to basically answer the question, if there's not a creator, but there is a Big Bang, then how do we explain the Big Bang itself? And like you said, string theory, you know, the Discovery Channel, if you had the Discovery Channel or the History Channel on in the last decade, you've heard that string theory is the thing. It's the explanation. We don't need God anymore. We have string theory. It receives very little attention in this book, which I thought was almost a testament to the fact that it was here and gone. Uh, And that's kind of the way these things work sometimes. Yeah, and that was another example of, if we introduce mathematical abstraction, cool stuff pops out of it. And so we got really fascinated by that. Um, yeah, if you give me like six dimensions or 12 dimensions, or if I just am allowed to keep adding dimensions to the math, cool stuff happens. But that's a big gap between saying, and thus it describes the underlying reality. And in fact, I, I think we could come full circle to one of our earlier points. It would be a conclusion only motivated by theism to believe that there is some coherent mathematical reality that defies all explanation that underlies everything else. Uh, that Why would you even think that's true? Um, it's not very scientific to me. And so <laughs> I come back to being a 
a real scientific skeptic uh, when the mathematics is used in such an abstraction without any even verbiage for how to describe what you're talking about. The, the multiverse theory kind of comes to the same conclusion. I love this section. Uh, it's 337 in the book where he lists like 10 hypothetical things you have to believe in before you can even start talking about a multiverse. The multiverse being this idea that the universe, we don't have to explain its origination because it comes from a universe producing machine, a, a multiverse, a, a you know, we'll use silly language, near infinite space or a near infinite amount of universes, eventually ours pops out. And, uh, but the amount of things you have to believe in and, and kind of invent to make that work, and still you're left with kind of a silly explanation. I, I love the line in the book. It's kind of like saying, where did the bread come from? Oh, there's a bread making machine. Well, thanks. Uh, I would like to now know about the bread making machine. No, don't ask us about that. <laughs> a bread making machine would have to be vastly more intricate and amazing than bread. And so telling me that there is a universe making universe means that everything we've heard about fine tuning, everything we've heard about the immense complexity of the universe, just dial it up again and give me something that makes that routinely uh, in the same way our universe makes atoms, that universe makes universes. Uh, okay, thanks. That, that just made a more complicated thing that I can't test, can't examine, can't directly observe, and now I have to explain because I thought that would be simpler than theism. Right. Yeah, the multiverse was the one I thought uh, when we got to this part in the book of the rebuttals, it was the one I had been waiting for because it is the popular thing to talk about now. What, how do we get an origin of a universe without God? Well, it's a multiverse. In fact, there are infinite universes. We just happen to live in the one uh, that could produce life, and that's why we're here. It's kind of a just-so explanation of life. Yeah. And uh, there's not a lot of questions that get asked before that. Okay, so if that's the case, how did this whole eternal generation of universes <laughs> begin? I, I think in in some ways the multiverse, as it's used popularly, is a great comeback for some people against things like the fine-tuning argument. You know how astronomical the odds have to be to produce even a few of these variables for life. Well, if you had infinite universes, so the logic goes, it's almost inevitable that we'd have one that produced life. Sure enough, we do, and we're living in it right now. How, how do you rebut that? Uh, so a couple of things that I, I think are worth mentioning. And, and first, as I've joked several times in this podcast, this word infinite is really slippery. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 first of all, will agree with William Lane Craig that there's no actual infinites. I don't think you can have material infinites. There, there can't be an infinite number of poodles or tacos or electrons. Um, it's, a, it's another great useful fiction. Like for mathematics, it's a wonderful tool to make something work. But that doesn't mean it has a corresponding physical reality that there is a, a number of rocks such that no matter what number you name, there is at least one more. You know, that physically doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm going to just shove that to the side and say no to infinite multiverse, which means I've got a finite multiverse. 
So at some point, then I have some finite number. And no matter how big that number is, it has limitations of what you can have in that. If it's finite, there's no guarantee what you want pops out of it. And in fact, there's a lot of reasons to think things you wouldn't like would pop out. Uh, for example, the discussion about uh, Boltzmann brains, uh, which Boltzmann, uh, there's a funny joke about Boltzmann in this, that he had too much time on his hand. And that's exactly true. If you ever read anything about Boltzmann, he had way too much time on his hand. All his ideas are nuts. <laughs> but the idea that um, a, a brain, th think of your brain in terms of chemistry for a minute, a mind, that's a state of chemistry that exists in your skull. Okay. Is it possible to assemble that physical state where you have every memory you currently have, but those things never actually happened? Uh, if, if, all, if you're completely materialist, then the answer has to be yes. In fact, as mathematics and physicists have proven time and time again, it's actually easier to randomly assemble a brain that happened to have those false memories than it would be to assemble a universe where those specific events took place leading to your memories. Hmm. So if you make a universe that big, the most logical conclusion is not that this happened, but that you are a brain slash mind floating in space with the false memories that these things happened. But it's more likely that you have a random assortment of chemicals that makes you think you live in a 14 billion year old universe and that you had toast for breakfast than that it is that any of those things actually happened. Hmm. At which point, what are we talking about? If it's more likely, back to your uh, forms of logic of uh, logic of probability is it more likely that i'm everything i know is made up or that it's real and if it's more likely everything's made up what am i talking about anymore and, mm -hmm. and, is, and again the question i keep coming back to is this still science uh right. and why bother yeah and that and you know that kind of leads to the point where at the end of a lot of these arguments uh in this book popular arguments in general, you say, okay, we have gone through so many gyrations and we've been over backwards to come up with some explanation for the universe and for life and for the life that we actually live and experience. Wouldn't it just be easier at the end of the day to believe that God just created all this in, and it happened the way he said so in his word? I mean, at the end of the day, you get to the to the point where you say, I actually think it's a lot more likely that that happened based on the evidence. And uh, that's exactly what Christians and creationists have been claiming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, science has found itself having to do the things that it criticizes in Christianity. I mean, what's what's the best argument, Cole, other than maybe human suffering or something? What's the best argument about any kind of creation? It's the God of the gaps that mm -hmm. you Christians just run to God to fill any gap in your knowledge. I mean, that's a tough argument because we've actually done it sometimes. You know, fair right. point. Uh, not as many times as they think, but it's happened. It, it okay, fair enough. So, what has science done? It's invented. It's possible. We postulated one being. Let's say that all the atheists are right, and we made up one being to solve the question. You invented a incalculable number of untestable, unscientific, hypothetical things to explain what I explained with one. 
mean, you know, I know Oakham's razor can be a little troubling, but it seems like <laughs> my one thing might make more sense than your uh, ad hoc uh, construal of new ideas when uh, you and I, like old Popper and and some of those philosophy of science guys, Popper says it stops being science when you keep adding an ad hoc clarification to make the previous problem in your theory work. Well, we're up to like 10 to the 500th number of ad hoc construals in, in this book. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, at some point, maybe we have to give that one other idea at least a fair shake. Yeah, I love that you frame that with the God of the Gaps because that's that's the conclusion that Meyer reaches in this book is we need to evaluate this claim and we need to adjudicate it justly on both sides. The God of the Gaps accusation, like you said, is essentially every time we can't explain something, we say that's God. And from the scientific Apollo, side of things. Apollo dragging a chariot across the sky is how the sun moves, right? You know, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's the God of the Gaps. And so then you come along and science actually can't explain something. You don't need God in that place anymore, but then God finds the next gap and he just shows up. And really what we're talking about is the ignorance of explaining certain things that we will explain in the future. You flip that argument right around, and all of a sudden, you have a science of the gaps uh, that yeah. you just described. So I, I love that Meyer ends here, because this is really what's batted around uh, in the different arguments. On the one hand, you can say, well, sure, it looks like, given what we know now and don't know now, that God is the most reasonable explanation, but just give us 25 years or 100 years, and we'll come up with explanations for the things that are not there, uh, and then we won't need God anymore. On the flip side, uh, you know, Christians and theists are sitting here saying, every time you all have a gap, you fill it with future scientific discoveries yeah. that may or may not be very scientific, like, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about in this book that people have proposed. Uh, why don't you just come to grips with the fact that what's staring us in the face is that creationism is a great way to assess even the scientific claims of the universe. I, I loved, and and honestly, we had all been waiting for this person to make an entrance on the stage of Stephen Meyer's book. I love his treatment of Neil deGrasse Tyson at the very end of this book. Oh, yeah. uh, I would say he's probably the most prominent specialist scientist in the world today, certainly the one that uh, you see on the most popular level programs and among atheists, he's kind of the Goliath shouting across the valley at all the scared Christians. M Meyer really undoes Neil deGrasse Tyson within a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Uh, so, so Tyson's bit that he does, so he's a huge fan of Isaac Newton personally. It's where all the means come from. Uh, but his big thing about, Isaac Newton, he likes to tell, is that uh, when Newton got to a point and he couldn't explain the relative, the motions of uh, Jupiter and a couple other objects, he just said, well, you know, an angel kicked it or something. You know, it's like some kind of divine action <laughs> happened. And so, well, see, even in the life of Newton, science, uh, religion is a science killer. You know, he just invoked God to fix a problem. He was too... Uh, what lazy to fix with math? I don't know. I mean, the whole thing. Like, how do you have a love affair with Isaac Newton and then imagine that he just turns his brain off in the end and says something like that? So right up front, it's it's sketchy, but you hear it all the time. So Myers goes back and says, "Okay, I'm going to read Principia Mathematica. I'm going to read like everything Newton wrote. It's not there. 
Uh, he is deeply religious, no question about that. He does believe gravity and every other thing in the universe is a result of the rationality of God and is kept in store by God. Uh, he acknowledges there are some spots where he had trouble, but actually offers some pretty reasonable explanations for Jupiter and so forth. Um, but I'll even go a step further than Meyer does. I mean, Meyer does a great job just fact-checking him. But let's say he's right. What is what is Tyson's claim? Religion is the science killer. And you want to invoke Isaac Newton? Hmm. It clearly didn't. I mean, if, if after Isaac Newton, we had had a thousand-year dark age where science just died because, well, the angels kicked the planets once in a while, and that's what Isaac Newton did. It's not what happened. It didn't kill science. Newton took us to all new places, and the next guy did, and the next guy did. This is the beginning of the Enlightenment. It's how we got there, and it's from a deeply religious person. So at worst, let's say Tyson's right and Myers can't read, and Newton is invoking God all over the place. It clearly didn't stop science in any way, shape, or form. So Tyson, on the one hand, is factually wrong. Thank you, Meyer, for doing the homework on that for us. And then, as always, philosophically wrong, because his point is the opposite of his own point. Uh, religion clearly didn't hold back the mind of Isaac Newton, as mm -hmm. the modern world attests every day. Right. And, and it, let's say, okay, again, to the point, scientists do this all the time. We just don't call them angels. Uh, Ptolemy had said, okay, it's epicycles. He explained motion in the sky he couldn't fix, not through a divine uh, angelic personal being, but through a, a geometry that was equally untestable. And, and he was wrong. But that's how science works. When you've come to a gap, whatever it is, you throw something in it and see if it sticks. Um, once upon a guy a time, a guy said, you know, it'd be great if there was a particle there called an electron. There was no reason to think it actually was, except it would explain some things. And science quite often throws mysterious things in those gaps, um, and quite often is wrong. Luminiferous ether was the substance that all of light radiated through in the universe, up until Mickelson and Morley discovered it didn't exist. And everybody was wrong. And the corpuscular theory of particles was great until it was wrong. I mean, we, we've made as many physical postulates as we have theological ones that turned out to be wrong. Um, so I, I think it just, it, it's, a, it's a bad appreciation of how science actually works by Tyson um, because he puts anything theological in its own category of silliness and doesn't recognize that every day in science we're postulating things we can't see and then testing them. And I'll grant it's a little harder to test, did an angel move that object? I get that. And there, it, it is, in a sense, in its own category, but not in the sense of there is a gap in our knowledge we're trying to fill. And the fact that we have found places where we didn't need personal agency certainly doesn't mean that there's no place out there where we would need personal agency, like from a divine being. I think it's a big difference in the two, mm. mm -hmm. uh, especially in the question of origins, where we just we just keep coming back to beating our head against the wall in the same spot. I mean, it's right there, whether the beginning time zero can be 
five minutes ago or 15 billion years ago, it's the same problem. I don't know if you've ever played tic-tac-toe with a seven-year-old. Um, you know this game is only going to end one way, but he's he's smart enough to have figured out the game, but he's not smart enough yet and experienced enough yet to know that he will and you will never win, that it will always be a tie. He still thinks there's a permutation of the arrangement of the X's and O's where somebody wins, and you're like, it, it's not possible. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I feel like science has kind of hit that moment where we just keep drawing a new tic-tac-toe board and saying, well, what if we did this to the beginning? Or what if we did this? Or what if we put an imaginary variable in? Um, it's it's may, Maybe the game's rigged, man. <laughs> maybe these naturalistic explanations have finally reached their limitations. Well, on, on that point, and I think that's one that comes up over and over again in the book, where do you think the conversation goes from here? Where where are the new uh, places for discussion and discovery? Um, you know, what's yeah, this would be a difficult thing to predict, but what's the next round of things that we'll see uh, from the scientific atheist community as a challenge to faith? What are the places where you think creationism is really strong right now? Um, I can, I can make a few random predictions. I, I think, um, in the area of both physics and biology where Myers is writing, uh, Christian apologetics is really at the top of the mountain right now. We're doing pretty well. Uh, we have to get our case out there better, you know, okay, fair enough. That's PR battle, but informationally, uh, we're in a good moment in history as far as those go. Science, on the other hand, is kind of ripe for a revolution, like it's due. Uh, it's been 100 years since we really flipped it upside down. And uh, as I mentioned from the very beginning, um, there are too many abstractions in the theories right now. And the way science history usually works is there'll be an abstraction, and then there'll be some, like the experimental physics will catch up, and then the experimental physics will get ahead, and then the math guys will catch up, and then they'll get ahead. Right now, the math guys are way ahead of the experimental guys, and we're kind of waiting for them to catch up and then pass again. And so we're, we're really just waiting for data. Like the, at some point, the mathematical models are great, but I, I need some data. Uh, we're going to have to have it. So that I think quantum mechanics is, is just ripe for a revolution, maybe even relativity. Um, and, and that's maybe in our lifetime we're going to see that. In terms of where the debate goes next, I think there are some really interesting areas that we have to talk about. I know you've been really interested in AI. Um, I've been interested in whether it can write sermons for me. But beyond that, I haven't gotten <laughs> really into the morality and ethics of AI. But it, it raises some interesting questions about um, things science can do. Uh, what is personhood? Uh, what is morality? Which is Christians. I'm game. I mean, those are all the questions we've always wanted to ask anyway. And the scientists tried to tell us that wasn't important right up to the point where, oh, suddenly it is because we made this thing. Um, you know, science is really especially good at running up to the cliff and then just jumping right off. We we tend not to ask, is this a good idea until it's been done? Um, I don't know if you've ever read the history of the University of Chicago guys early in the Manhattan Project. Who are down they're in a basement beneath the university of chicago doing the earliest research on atom splitting and stuff and really didn't know what was going to happen i mean they pushed the big red button and threw the switch 
and they didn't know if a black hole was going to open up and end all reality or what. <laughs> and they, of course they hit the button and they did it. And I kind of feel like we're having that moment with AI where mm-hmm. uh, something is, it's happening and there it is. So now what? And I, I, I hope Christians are engaged in that because science has proven itself to be a little bit inadequate to ask those questions. What, what do you think, Cole? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think science, and, and this is fair to be fair to science, it is not within the realm of science to ask the question, should we do this? It's right. really more to ask the question, can we do this? What can and, we and do? And what would happen if we did? Yeah. And, sure. uh, you know, so true to their uh, own marching orders, they're not really asking about the ethics of science and AI and et cetera. But there are people that need to be doing that. And there need and there are people that need to be conversant enough with the technical side of the science to then say, okay, but if we do this and it does seem like we're capable of doing it, what would the implications be on an ethical or an anthropological basis, on a spiritual basis? And that's a very interesting question to me. I think the more that we can think about AI, personhood, intelligence, automation, um, the better uh, we will fare, not just as Christians, but humanity in general uh, in the next couple of decades. I think there are some really interesting people thinking about these things. I think there's a great book by John Lennox, who's a uh, British mathematician turned apologist. you guys, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a yeah, mathematician. Yeah, so he's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, writing on this topic quite a bit right now. He's got a book called 2084. It's about 120 pages, just diving into all the big areas of artificial intelligence. Of course, you can solve most of this and get your get your feet wet just by watching or reading Isaac Asimov's iRobot. I mean, that problem really hasn't been improved on in the last 60 <laughs> years or however long it's been since yeah. he wrote that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how the old questions come around. Um, I, I kind of laugh that like at every one of these podcasts, I've managed to make a point of Aristotle or Plato. And as I was rereading some of this today, sure enough, he pops up on like page 400 something. Uh, no, it's three, 374. He goes back and says, you know, it actually sounds a lot like questions that Plato raised. It, the really right. good questions come back around. Um, That's and right. Science uh, is a fantastic tool. But as you and I have talked about a lot, um, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And science is a tool that hammers don't work really good on electrical outlets. Uh, and it's not the electrical outlet's fault. It's just not what it's for. Mm-hmm. And so science keeps coming back to these little dilemmas where it it, it needs something it can't give us. <laughs> right. And I don't know. Um, we shouldn't, as you say, shouldn't blame science for it. We should blame our inexcusable decision to put all of our, our eggs in that basket and, yes. and not ask the bigger questions. So what, one of the things that we've talked about that I loved about this book is after going through all of space and time and history and sci-fi, practically, we had Vilenkin and we had Hawking and everybody. He comes back and tells a personal story of anxiety as a teenager dealing with the question of meaning. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when that's what happens. When you get to that far out distant id, no matter what your answer is, you still ask, so what? Mm-hmm. Does anything mean anything? Uh, is still a pretty good question. And science has complicated the question, but it hasn't answered the question. And right. we're going to need to be human. We're going to need to be able to talk about that question. 
Yeah, I can't improve on that. I think that's it's a great way that Meyer ends the book, and it's a great way to end this conversation. That you know, as Christians, we we bring a mindset and epistemology that is pro science. We we are all about discovering the world that God has made, but we also know the boundaries of science. And for us, there is something outside the boundaries of science, and it is a tool that God has given us to explore the world to make life tremendously better for millions, billions of people. Uh, to see human flourishing, but to also know the limits and to know the source of where all knowledge comes from and where the universe that makes sense to us comes from. And so uh, that would be kind of my parting word on the book is it's a wonderful treatment of these scientific issues with an eye to the fact that for us, this is one part of our knowledge of the world. And that's when science works best is when it knows that it is just a part of what we know and how we know and not the whole thing. Yep. Science uh, does great, wonderful, beautiful things in the world. Oddly enough, science doesn't tell you how to treat a scientist. It doesn't tell you how to treat any other person. And that's something you're going to have to know every single day. Uh, If only we had something that could tell us that uh, and guide us in that way beyond science. Wouldn't that be something? Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.